Welcome to Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. This programme features a talk from a conference that the WFA held with the British Commission for Military History on the 1st of April 2017. The British Commission for Military History is an organisation which aims to promote through research, publication and discussion an understanding of British military history. For more information about the BCMH, go to their website at bcmh.org.uk. The joint conference focused on the armies of 1917. It examined the military forces of the Allies and the Central Powers. In particular, it discussed their tactical and technical advances, the internal issues affecting each army, such as their morale, and also military operations such as the Battles of Arras, Third Ypres, and Cambrai. In this episode, Michael Orr gives a talk titled Bunny and his artillery company, Command and the Morale in the 2nd Battalion Honourable Artillery Company in 1917. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. My contribution to this study of morale and motivation in 1917 is a close look at one British battalion and how command was exercised in that unit. My sources are the battalion commander's diary at uh, the Little Heart Collection, the battalion and other formation war diaries in the National Archives, and the published and unpublished accounts by other ranks in the battalion. This was not a typical battalion by any means. It was composed largely of middle-class clerical workers from the City of London, but one might say the commanding officer, Richard O'Connor, was very typical of the pre-war regular army. So this is a description of a clash of cultures and an assessment of how the traditional leadership style of the British officer corps <coughs> stood up under the strain of war. The strains faced by O'Connor were summarised in his obituary in the HAC journal, which I'll leave you to read. <coughs> Thank you. The HAC claims to be the oldest extant military unit in England, dating back at least to Henry VIII. And during the First World War, it provided two infantry battalions, five artillery batteries that served overseas, and over 5,000 officers who were commissioned into other units of the British Army. And that statistic in particular tells you a great deal about the sort of men they were recruiting. Now, in the picture up at the top, showing the 1st Battalion being inspected by the Captain General, King George V, this block of largely civvies at the back is the original 2nd Battalion, composed of those pre-war soldiers who did not take the Imperial Service obligation to serve abroad, veterans who returned to the colours, but were considered not fit enough to go to France, and new recruits, untrained. <coughs> During late 1915, the Derby scheme brought in, and the prospect of conscription, brought in a new wave of recruits looking for a socially acceptable unit in which to serve if service was inevitable. One of them, A.R. Reid, told his fiancée 
I find it still possible to join the better territorial regiments after being attested in Lord Derby's scheme, and there were many of those. In a pattern typical of second-line territorial units, a new CA was appointed just before the battalion went to France in October 1918. He was Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Lambert Ward. If you lost an hour's sleep last Saturday, you can blame Lambert Ward because it was his private member's bill that made daylight saving a permanent feature. <laughs> um, he had 20 years' service with the HAC, had served in France with them, had been wounded more than once, and had commanded a battalion of the Royal Naval Division in 1916. So he had recent command experience. As you can see, though, he was rather horrified by what he found, and in particular, the state of training. The assurances from GOC London District about the time they would have to train in France proved unfounded. Within two weeks, they were in the line at Plug Street Wood. The morning after their first spell in the trenches, there were 125 men on sick parade. <coughs> and I'm going to, no, time to go back. Try again. Uh, maybe you can use the Irish one. Okay. Yeah. Um, th this is uh, Ward speaking in the House of Commons in 1939. Very interesting insight into the battalion there and the impact on these older men who composed so many of his battalion. By older, we mean people who were 35 and over, probably, rather than under 25. That's uh, two of them at the bottom in the trenches at uh, Beaumont Hamill in the winter of 1916-17. Uh, <coughs> now, of course, at this time, spring 1917, the British Expeditionary Force is involved in adopting a new tactical organisation and a new tactical doctrine based on the lessons of the Somme. 2HAC is not well placed to benefit from this. They don't have the Somme experience. And the train, although they spend a lot of time training, I have to say, I don't think it's, on the whole, very effective training. When you look at the programmes, they're spending a lot of time on repetitive individual training like practicing rapid loading of rifles with dummy bullets. And there's almost no unit training, very little training at formation level. It's as though division and brigade don't trust them to operate as a unit. And when they start, um, sorry, this, that just reflects the standard of training. That's one draft sent in December 1916. It's just re reported on as untrained whereas about half of them had trained specialists originally. Time they spent, you can see there's very little time for training as opposed to trenches and working parties, very normal pattern. When they actually get involved with 7th Division in following up the German retreat to the Hindenburg Line, <coughs> they tend to get stuck for carrying parties and support roles. When they do get a combat task, it's not the sort of thing that's going to raise morale. The last one there, the probing attack at Macquarie. Against the CO's protests, they're ordered to send out patrols to see whether the village of Macquarie is still held by the Germans. Two platoons, 70 men, 
go forward. Only eight of them are not killed or wounded. Um, and they're involved in one or two other things. Their first major action is at Bulkor. They're no more successful or unsuccessful than any other battalion. Nobody does well at Bulkor. But there, there is one episode which does um, do them some good. Um, after their attack, two days after their attack, a new brigade attacks and captures more of the village and finds Corporal Billingham and eight men holding out in, an, in a German trench. The corps commander notes, these men came out with their Lewis gun and full equipment in good order. It showed that even when exhausted, they still remembered they were soldiers. And he uh, decreed that they should all be immediately awarded military medals and came and presented them himself. But the result of these actions, you see there, and that is the state the HAC had been reduced to in manpower when O'Connor takes over. And it's the bottom line about the number of leaders, junior leaders, and specialists that they require, which is particularly significant. O'Connor is well known for his Second World War exploits. In the First World War, he was very much a 7th Division man, where he was known as Bunny. And you'll see photographs of him standing, a short man standing with his ear in the nose, sort of nose twitching, and look, you can see where he got his nickname. Of course, all subalterns in 1914 have to have a nickname. Um, O'Connor serves with the division in staff appointments, large, uh, signals officer, divisional signals officer, and a brigade major, until Goff sends him to a second-line territorial division in the spring of 1917 as brigade major. And 7th Division, since then, had been trying to get O'Connor back as a battalion commander. They were obviously impressed by his talents, but O'Connor has no command experience at that point. He's never been a company commander or a battalion 2IC. If he has a model of how to behave as CO, it must be... Second Scottish Rifles, his regular battalion, in which he served <laughs> up until 1914 for four years. Those of us who have been lucky enough to read John Bain's book, Morale, will know all about that battalion and how it is um, almost the archetype, the epitome of a pre-war regular battalion. That's the model, with its rather stiff, formal battalion commanders and strict discipline that O'Connor is seeking to apply. He recognises his lack of experience. Within a couple of days of taking over, his diary records that he went to see Colonel Longbourn of the Second Queens, who gave me the most enormous number of useful tips. And division, or corps, recognising his lack of experience, send him Major Snape of the South Staffords as second in command. Snape is a commissioned RSM who commanded a company and won the military cross at Mametz in 1916 and had served as acting second in command of the battalion. O'Connor notes, his sergeant major's knowledge is just what I want and what I lack at present. As he took over the battalion, he records much later, I found everyone was more or less equal. Everyone called each other by their Christian names 
There were no punishments. The men were invited to carry out their orders and generally did so. I'm afraid it took quite a long time to produce some form of <coughs> discipline. They hated me to begin with, but eventually tolerated and possibly respected me. O'Connor and Snape go at this reformation by applying, first of all, the trappings of a regular battalion. The drums, the battalion colours, actually all things which belonged to the HAC, but they hadn't bothered to use them, which O'Connor puts into practice. Inevitably, <coughs> sports, particularly football, begin to feature. Snape sends up a sports committee. All the football results, of course, are recorded in the battalion war diary. And O'Connor runs a continual series of competitions, very largely based on individual skills, bayonet fighting, uh, Lewis guns, musketry, and so on, and an intercompany uh, competition. All classic, traditional ways of making a battalion more efficient. How did his civilian soldiers react? Well, that's um, a man at the time, Lance Corporal Bradley, who was on leave when O'Connor took over, recording how he found the new regime. And those block letters at the back of Bradley's own, I would have paid him to take them off me. But he goes on to say, they made us into a battalion to be proud of. Not all went that far. The one pub published account is Arthur Lambert's Over the Top, uh, which is often quoted in books about leadership in the First World War, without anybody, as far as I can tell, noticing that the Martinet CO he's talking about is Richard O'Connor. Um, and that describes the particular attack. That's the uh, hill up to Quelms that they were marching up in that particular quotation. And there you have the classic picture of the distant disciplinarian CO looking at his men as he sends <coughs> them to the slaughterhouse. Um, Lambert is also quoted, for example, in Peter Hodgkinson's book, British Infantry Battalions of the First World War. Every conceivable kind of posh must happen, and some battalion commanders would have hauled, ordered their men's memories to be thoroughly scoured if possible. Reading O'Connor's diary, you can see that determination to impose his standards, but in a much more nuanced way. 12th of June. Murray, my new adjutant, made a certain amount of box-up about orders for the field firing. However, it is much better he should make all the mistakes he's going to now, during the period of training when it doesn't matter. 21st of June, the men are excellent material. 27th, went round the line. A certain amount of work has been done, but they have no idea of keeping their posts in good order. I strafe them pretty well. I hope for improvement tomorrow. 30th, I jumped on quite a number of people, but people, things have certainly improved a good bit. 1st of July, they don't know the job properly and are bad diggers by trade and don't know much about wiring. The officers and the NCOs won't realise that if I say I want something done, I mean to get it done and they don't jump on their underlings for not doing things. 
There is an HAC legend that one subaltern displeased O'Connor and was summoned to the ordinary room for what the army would now call an interview without coffee, and during the course of which he fainted. <laughs> but what also emerges is O'Connor may put pressure on his men, but he will defend them against higher command. There's an incident when they're ordered to do a raid in coordination with a raid by another battalion, which is to lead off. That, that, that uh, raid fails because a Bangalore torpedo doesn't explode. And O'Connor then sat down and wrote a full report on it, sparing none of the staff for allowing the success of one operation to de be dependent on the success or failure of a second. The part that worried me was that these men must have had an awful time waiting through two and a half hours expecting a signal that never came. The improvement is noticed. Right? Go back. Yeah. Uh, there's the divisional commander, General Shoebridge, Harry Tate, as he was generally known, uh, and recording one of several times in which 2nd HAC are noted for good performance in particular tasks. In September, 7th Division are pulled out for training to prepare for commitment in the 3rd Battle of Ypres. In the beginning of October, they move into the salient. I'm not going to talk in detail uh, about the action that 2nd HAC were involved in, but I want to outline how O'Connor prepared his battalion and how he dealt with the aftermath. <coughs> There's an incident on the way up when an advance is cancelled the battalion moved back and are then are ordered to send up 100 men to carry ammunition to the front line. O'Connor protests and the order is cancelled, but then at midnight it's reinstated. And he writes, We turned them out at once and I said a few words to them to put their backs into it. Next morning they came back, having done their job very well. So he's not just sending them up unregarding, he is showing that he's aware that they've got a difficult and unpleasant task. As the battalion prepares for the attack, he writes, I think I've now done almost everything I can think of. I have talked to the whole battalion on parade, explained everything to officers and NCOs. So we can only hope for the best now. I hope the casualties won't be too heavy. In fact, they're not used on that occasion. Uh, 7th Division attack on the 4th of October as part of the Battle of Brutsango, but they're left with an exposed flank <coughs> towards Reutel, and 2nd HAC and 2nd Royal Warwicks are ordered to attack to clear up that flank. As they move up, O'Connor ensures that they get hot food and they're sheltered as far as possible from the weather on the way up. He reconnoitred the ground himself, and then explain the attack on the ground to the company commanders. Every company commander and platoon commander and as many section commanders as possible are shown the ground over which they're to attack. In the night before the attack, Bradley comes up out of his headquarters in the boot where the cemetery and the Australian War Memorial now is, up to the forming up line. We've got damnably shelled going up. I spoke to a lot of the men, in two, including two company commanders. He verifies they've got some hot food and they've had their feet rubbed with whale oil, you know, 
Custer's 7th Cavalry died with their boots on, the British Army died with whale oil on their feet. It's not a particularly cheering prospect. Splashes of wet and cold rain, a vast sea of mud, and particularly heavy shelling. The men really were damn good. They lay on their blessed old tape and never moved for the shelling. Bradley was there and records, we had a very pleasant surprise which boosted morale tremendously. The colonel crawled out to the front line to wish us all good luck in the attack. He was not his usual immaculate self, but was plastered with mud. And as he shook hands with all and sundry, I was surprised at the number of men he knew by name. And I think that last bit is very significant. The attack goes in, they suffer very heavy casualties, total of 326 killed and wounded. By noon, there is no unwounded officer left in the front line. They are totally without, effectively, totally without officers. But they hold on and they capture their objective. In the aftermath, they're moved back to the village of Metron into billets. <laughs> Lambert has a chapter, Rewards at Metron, in which he describes, for example, how he's caught out at rifle inspection with mud under the least side of his backside uh, and is marched into the order room. Six days, loss of pay, march out from O'Connor and one or two other incidents. O'Connor certainly notes in his diary, 19th of October, I carried out an inspection of the battalion in fighting order. It was not good, especially D Company. <coughs> the battalion is getting slack after its labours and will have to be woken up. Next day, a big orderly room and heavy chastisement for D Company for their bad turnout yesterday. But other soldiers saw things differently to Lambert. Corporal <coughs> Eagleton thought his billets and metron were absolutely ripping. And he records, paraded for an address by the colonel about the attack and how pleased he was that in spite of the fact that we had no officers left, we held on to our objective. <coughs> O'Connor is praising first before he punishes. And what Lambert doesn't bring out, but O'Connor knows, is the division and the battalion are about to go back into the line and they need to be ready for it. I haven't got time to talk about the battalion's successes in 1918 in Italy, but in conclusion, I'd like to make two points. <coughs> O'Connor applies the traditional paternalistic and disciplinarian model of command with great success. <coughs> Doesn't, though, fit modern concepts of leadership and unit cohesion. Uh, Hodgkinson, Hodgkinson, in particular, talks about modern concepts of weeness within a unit. O'Connor hardly ever uses the word we. Throughout 1917, when he's talking about the battalion, it is always they. 1918, sometimes it's my battalion. The only time I could find he uses the word we to describe 2nd HAC is on the 4th of November, 1918. Um, so he certainly was not working to that particular model. But his model worked. It was a very successful unit. And secondly is the danger of relying on published sources without, because they're available, without bearing in mind the context. Lambert, his published book, fits the classic lions led by donkeys um, model. O'Connor's diary reveals a commander with a real concern for his men 
and the determination to bring them up to his <coughs> standards. The unpublished accounts from the battalion present a picture of acceptance and pride in the unit's achievements. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.